Hi, this is Jonas. On this week's episode of the Bonsai Wire podcast, co-host Andrew Robson and I talk about an upcoming event hosted by the Bonsai Society of Portland. The event, called Farm to Table, is a celebration of all things related to field-grown material with a special focus on the work of Telperian farms over the year. The conversation took place late at night, so if any of it sounds wonky or not fully thought through, that's why, but we do hope you enjoy the episode. It's interesting, you're, you're, you're planning this this show, which is awesome, and we've been in Portland doing this Farm to Table event, which has been really fun because it's, it's more... Ed, you know more education less less display um and so that's been kind of a fun puzzle to work around we're asking basically the same questions just for a different event so give us the overview what is farm to table farm to table okay so we have so much we i mean in in many ways you and i always complain that we don't have enough growers and that's 100 percent true but in other ways, there's been a lot of people growing trees, you know, and it's 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 not necessarily one person, but it's it's been like, oh yeah, I have a batch of fifty trinets and on, on my farm, and I dig these out, or you know, Brussels has been a good grower; he grows these crazy dawn redwoods. Um, a lot of you know, there have been a lot of people growing trees, and I think one of the biggest challenges that we see with that is that we were we've gotten good at growing mass you know i can grow a big trunk but then when i how do i take that big trunk you know how do i take this tree from a farm and get it on a display table in front of a judge um in in a pot that's mossed and looking nice and so that's what our farm to table events kind of about is our our you know starting point is telperion farms since they were our our local you know growing home for the club Uh, but you know, there's a lot of these Telperion trees in circulation, um, and they have different challenges than we're maybe used to to, to dealing with, um, with with maybe field-grown material that we see from Japan. Yeah. Uh, and so, how do we take something like this and turn it into something that's beautiful? How do we get the best out of this material? How do you make that initial pivot from farm to display table? And and so that's what our event's about. It's 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 that initial kind of you know transition so how many bonsai books have you seen in your life in any language that break down the techniques you need to get from trunk to show not many you know any? one of the one of the books that i recommend is peter adams has a great maples uh, book yeah. and he shows you what happens and he uh, the best thing i like about the book is not the actual photographs but the illustrations uh, that I don't know if he did or, or someone else did, but he has like a, a trunk chopped trident and then he has the sprouts and then he has the sprouts growing and getting thick and then cutting them again. And, and that progression uh, from a, 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 you know, a trunk chop to a very beautiful traditional trident, um, that that book has some really magical illustrations in it that, that I think a lot of books lack. But there's, I mean, that's just... You know, one little snippet in a, in a, in yeah. a big book. There's not many out yeah, it's there. It's interesting. Most bonsai books assume you have a bonsai. Yeah. It looks like a bonsai. Yeah. And most bonsai don't start out as bonsai. <laughs> they start <laughs> out as a seedling, a cutting. Yeah, or a plant from your of, local garden center. That's or right. something grown on the side of the road. or Yeah, it's... Right. So, and, and the thing that really, you know... The thing that really challenged me, so I, I've I've been playing with tons of deciduous field-grown material the last two years, essentially, and it's taught me a heck of a lot. 
And something that I learned was to take all of my preconceived notions and throw them in the trash. Because <laughs> we'll say know, more about what you mean by preconceived notions. Well, it's it's basically saying, you know, like, okay, I have a Korean hornbeam. If I look at Kokufu books, here's what Korean hornbeams look like. <laughs> but this doesn't look like any one of those things. And for me to turn it into one of those things would be disrespecting the material that's in front of me. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I get a worse result trying to force this to be something that it's not. So how do you take this thing that's very unusual and, and work with it? And to me, the mindset, you know, a good way to think about it has been, this is more like, even though this was grown on a bonsai farm, this thing was left to be kind of wild. It didn't get perfectly manicured or groomed. And so a lot of these plants, they have a very Yamadori feeling where they have these reverse tapers or flaws or straight portions or whatnot that end up being beautiful when you accept that it's not your preconceived notion of what it should be. So does that mean we are lowering our standards? I don't think it's lowering our standards. I think it's opening. We're literally the, saying it's, the flaws are okay now. It's and opening we're embracing the, them. Yeah, but it's. I mean, we've been doing that for a long time. How many? I mean, Michael Hagedorn's book is a great example of this multi heresy. You know, how many times do we see bar branches are bad and hear that in our clubs and and whatnot? And you go to Japan, and you see bar branches all over the place. And so if you're growing a tree from scratch, should our standards be higher or lower? You know, <laughs> years ago I would have said higher. I mean, if your goal is, you know, that perfect kokufu, traditional, idealized bonsai, then there's a path to get there. But if you just plant something in the ground and let it be wild, I think, you know, having... Having that wildness is, is that's what's been challenging me lately in a, in a really, really fun way. Oh, say more about that. Not, well, it's, it's, I mean, Walter says this a lot, and I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, do you have a tree that looks like a bonsai or a bonsai that looks like a tree? And I think accepting some of these conventional flaws or non-traditional aesthetics um, actually gives it the natural naturalness that that some of these plants lack um so it's been a really really fun challenge you know early on you know because i was looking for this very traditional mindset when i would go to telperion farms i wouldn't find many things that fit that box that preconceived box that i had and when i had the opportunity to get a lot of, of of plants from them uh, which was a huge stimulus for my garden, and I'm forever grateful for Chris and Lisa for that opportunity. Um, you know, now I, I feel like I have a, a duty to honor and, and respect these these plants, and that's it's it's teaching me a lot creatively. It's here's here's our limitation. How do we work around that? How do you create something beautiful that maybe you didn't used to appreciate or or respect? Um, and it's been a heck of a fun challenge working with these plants and yeah. Well, you I keep saying challenge. And so what comes to my mind, I'm curious if this is kind of what you mean. We see a lot of conservatively designed bonsai that have been grown for long periods of time in Japan and to some degree in this country. And given a specific trunk, we kind of know what the branch pattern is going to be. If we're relaxing our starting point or broadening our starting points for what trunks we're going to work with, 
what patterns do we follow to adorn these new shapes, these new starting points with our techniques? Because now that we have the technique to decorate the trunk with all these different approaches, the challenge is then how best do we complement these new forms? Well, I'm glad you brought it up because that's something I've been struggling with and thinking about a lot. You know, I'm wondering what happens when I take this really rough wild yamadori looking hornbeam let's say and i apply very conventional bonsai technique to it for five years 10 years 15 years is it going to retain that wildness that i'm starting to appreciate or is it going to shift and the my hypothesis is if if it does shift and it ends up looking you know because it gets very traditional um, primary, secondary branching, fine, fine twigging ramification. It, it it will still look unique because you know it's not this the the tr- you know you, the the endpoints are the same as what we might see in a Kokafu book, but the starting point, the trunk where it goes out from that, is so unique and individualized. And you know, think about it with Yamadori, you know. Yamadori, we, we name significant Yamadori because they have this individuality. Yeah. Um, one of the best Itoigawa was what? Smoke rising out of the volcano had this very poetic name. Um, but we were able to name them because they look so unique. Um, evocative. Yeah. But how many Japanese maples do you see with a name, right? They have very similar... They're at the Bonsai Museum in Saitama, the ones with names. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, they're, they're few and far between compared to some of the Yamadori conifers. That's right. And so I'm, I'm wondering with these deciduous trunks that are so wild and different, yeah, maybe we, we get to the same endpoint with the, the, the fine twigging, the outer branching, right. but maybe the, the character that they have will, will individualize them, will, will set them apart. That's right. And so two things come to mind on that score, whereas... If what the bonsai grower does is develop the branches that do the best to complement whatever we're starting with with the trunk, by starting with new trunks, we're going to come up with new forms. And so we can either apply, as you said, our conventional approaches to the branches, or maybe just as we varied from the core basic forms with our trunks, we might be doing the same thing with the branches and taking a little bit of sideways experimentation. Which brings me to... Endpoints, as you mentioned. So we have these fun trees that are different starting points, and the branches may or may not be conventional, but we will apply our time-based techniques to fill out silhouettes and provide the ramification that makes a tree look like a tree. Now, we know that if you take, say, a pine with a perfectly straight or angular, what many would call an ugly trunk, and add the world's most beautiful branches on it, it's still a very not compelling tree. And so the job will be to start with a non-conventional starting point that's hopefully not a turnoff because not everything with good branches is going to become compelling. Or is are we going to radically shift what we're finding compelling and look past that? Because I've seen a lot of trees that are not compelling bonsai despite wonderful silhouettes because the heart and soul of the tree, the trunk is not there. And I think you're finding that challenge because you're like... I see something interesting in those trunks. 
how do I build on that and still make a compelling bonsai? Yeah, and that's the challenge. And that's what, you know, Farm to Table wants to really kind of represent is is getting these starting points. Whether you have something that's been perfectly set up to be a very traditional conservative bonsai or something that's really wild, how do you take this rough piece of material that's maybe in a grow bag or in a big plastic tub? How do you do that initial repotting to get it in a pot? How do you make these just design decisions that we're talking about and and do a first styling i think you know on mm-hmm. on these field grown trees a first styling is is one of the more challenging mm-hmm. aspects and so i th- at the farm to table you know we're, we're going to be doing a lot of these uh and, and and talking about a lot of them how 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 you get started what approach which is so hard and that's super exciting so that's so both things you said are super exciting to me the one is what i love about the idea of farm to table is I want there to be more beautiful bonsai. That's always my secret ulterior motive to everything in bonsai. I, for selfish reasons, want to see more beautiful bonsai out in the world. And by showing people the techniques, we're going to be able to say, look, you have more starting points than you thought you did because we're going to say all of these trunks are great starting points. And we're going to say, here are some different paths you can take based on those starting points so that you can develop a tree and then kind of scaffold the process of what it might look like to develop that. And we're going to be looking at trees of many different species at different stages of development. And I think we're expecting a few displays that actually show trees at different ages to kind of suggest what that journey might look like for some of these trees. Yeah. So a little bit more about the event. So it's May 14th and 15th in Portland, Oregon. It's at the Milwaukee Center where BSOP holds our, our monthly meetings. May 14th is World Bonsai Day. So it's it's a, a fun kind of tie-in for that. Um it's going to be a lot of fun. We have a, a, a good panel of, of artists who have worked on a lot of these plants. You you and myself are in, in that group. Uh, Michael Hegedorn is going to be joining us for a little bit. John Eads, who's just getting started with a, a bonsai farm. Uh, the Kirks, Tel- Chris and Lisa Kirk, who, who ran Telperion Farms, and Gary Wood, who, who helped them along the way with, with growing, are going to be there. Tom Finsel, who was a close uh, uh, compadre of the group is, is going to be there and share some really interesting repotting techniques. Matt Reel, who, who along with myself, you know, a- after the, the fire at Telperion, I, I went and got a ton of deciduous and Matt went and got a ton of conifers. And, and so, you know, he's been doing what I've been doing with all these challenging deciduous plants. He's been going through that same mindset with, with some conifers. Uh, so it's going to be a really fun crowd of people, and it's 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 kind of a groupthink kind of seminar. You know, we have a lot of um, educational opportunities where we're all together, uh, which I think is going to be really fascinating. I think I'm as excited for the event as the average attendee will be, if not more so, because I like working with everyone you just mentioned, and I'm really excited to hear what you all have to say, because that's what's most fun for me. I love hearing multiple ideas for single trees. And so there are going to be, uh, I think, two super critiques where a whole panel of people are going to be talking about what approaches or paths they see leading forward from various starting points for trees. Yeah, that's right. So Saturday, we're going to set the stage. We're going to start with a panel discussion. And on Saturday, it's just to kind of do kind of what we're talking about right now, just set the stage for what is growing bonsai and and how do we start to make those transitions. Uh, So that, that kicks off the event. Uh, Saturday afternoon, we're going to have a super critique. 
which was super popular from our, our BSOP rendezvous a few years oh, ago. Um, it was by, of this whole convention that was the most popular thing by far was people the super those. critique. Um, yeah, and it, it, it worked out really well. So we're going to do that. You know, we're going to get a bunch of field grown trees that have barely been worked on. You know, you know, haven't really made this transition. Talk about how how to get there, and then we're going to finish day one with a, a super workshop. So and so, tell people: Are we going to be wearing capes, or like for those who haven't been to rendezvous, what makes a workshop super or a critique super? Yeah, super. It's just you know, rather than working with one person, uh, all of the artists are going to be floating. The critique, you know, all the artists are on stage, and we're each you know critiquing the tree and and groupthink. Basically, we're all sharing ideas and hopefully enhancing our ideas based and bouncing them off of each other and sharing different perspectives and, and directions to go. Same with the, the super workshop. So that's going to be people bring these plants. Maybe we do some light work or, or, or do a big, big group critique uh, for that. But it'll be, you know, a lot, you know, people bringing their trees, us going around the room, giving them a lot of different perspectives and, and maybe jumping in and doing some of those things as well. So that's, that's day one. I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And then how's day two looking? Yeah, so day two, that's when we're going to have a, a formal display. Not really an exhibition oh. like what, what you're doing, but just a formal display where we show maybe, you know, half a dozen, a dozen of these Telperion trees, you know, actually on a table that have made this journey already. And then maybe we have a few progression displays where you have a, a chochabai or a black pine that's, you know, a cutting and then three years down the road, five years, 10 years, a finished tree, something like that to show the progression of, of a young plant. So, so the, the, the display will be on Sunday. Um, we're going to do some demonstrations uh, in the morning, uh, which is going to be fun. It's a super demo, basically. So all of us doing the demo at the same time. So it's not just, you know, here, you get on stage, work on this tree and put on a show. You know, you're actually going to be able to work because, you know, five five people might be sharing the mic right. and working on plants at the same time. Uh, and, and we're going to have some um, mini lectures going on in between that. So we'll actually get time to, to work on these plants. Uh, Tom Finsel is going to talk about his top-down uh, bare root technique. Gary's going to talk about some some pine pruning from the fields. Uh, Chris and Lika, Lisa Kirk are going to talk about their experience uh, at the farm. And so it, it, sh- it should be a really, really fun morning. In the afternoon, we'll present the demo trees. We'll, we'll do a critique of the trees from the show that have made that journey already and maybe how to take them to the next step. And we'll finish the weekend with a reception. So it's, it's going to be a, a uh, casual yeah. event. But I think highly, highly educational. All of the focus is on education, not small details like what are we having for lunch or, or <laughs> what type of chair are we sitting in, something like that. All of the planning is really hyper-focused into the, the quality of the education. We're showing up to work and share the work so people can learn. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's going to be fun. So we'll fun. have a, a small display. We're, we're going to have some great vendors um, as well. So it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And for those who can't actually make the event, we will have a streaming option. So you'll be able to get a streaming pass for some of these more talk-centric events like the Super Critique or something like that, where you can jump on Zoom and tune in if you're out of town. Oh, great. That'll be exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm super stoked for that. Just hearing you say all that, I remembered I might actually have a Telperian tree that I've shown before that I hadn't thought about. Which not, one is that? I'm not... I'm ruin the surprise. I actually think 
I have a white show. I have a white shoju bai that I've had for a long time, and I'm not positive where it came from, but there's a good chance it uh, it was a one gallon can until period years ago. Yeah, you know, I I didn't even think about my white shoju bai, but that might be a fun one to display there as well. You know, that's the one that we we talked about in in our Sacramento show episode, uh, and you can see a photo of that tree on Jonas's blog. Um, and that one was a stock plant from Telperion, basically, that I restarted. So I don't know if that's a good one to to share or not because I just hit the reset button and, and changed a lot. But in some ways, we do that a lot with field-grown material as it is. It might be the most important point we're trying to make at this event is pretty much saying, how do we get the most out of whatever we're given? And if that's a hard reboot, you could not have done that same reboot without the 10 years that went into it before you touched it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, my biggest chojibai was field grown at Bonsai Northwest for about 10 years. And so same thing. It uh, it required a pretty darn hard reboot to, to start making a bonsai out of it. Yeah, neat. What are you excited for about the event? You're, you're coming up to participate. What? I've talked a lot about what we're doing. What, what, what sounds fun to you? Well, I feel kind of spoiled by the event because you all are all relatively local to each other. I'm the out of towner the interloper in the among the group and so for me by far the biggest thrill is just to be hanging out with the rest of you and so for those of you who don't know i'm pretty good friends with every single person who's participating in this event and so just to be able to spend time and hang out let alone learn from everyone in a setting like this well that's there's nothing i'd rather be doing that's super fun i think it's going to be fun for us in the the panel because I feel like I'm going to be learning just as much as yeah. as someone who's attending the event. And, and we all have such different experience, both in how we've learned and then what practically we've done over the years. So I plan to bring up some example of some. I may have some field-grown trees, but I'll definitely have some container-grown trees over the years because it's a lot of the same techniques and practices, but the genesis might have been a little different just to show trees at those different stages of development. Yeah, and this is something that I think we want to do. I mean, we obviously got to see how the first one goes, but this is something <laughs> we think we want to keep doing because so much of bonsai is, is about this transition of taking something that somebody has grown or, or this, this genesis, whatever it may be, and just getting it on a good path. And that initial transition is so, I don't know, monumental for uh, the design of a bonsai. It's... Yeah, it really is. And what's funny is this is going to bring up, and I hope we get into this at the event, if I were to artificially lump all of these initial stylings into two categories, there's pretty much design a tree up front or start building a tree. And I very much have spent more time in the build a tree camp. So 90% of the field-grown pines I look at well, duh, you graft it and then you add an inch and you add an inch and you add an inch and you add an inch. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, you have a great tree. And it doesn't occur to me to work with bad branches and fill out a silhouette because why would I want to end up with anything but a radical finish point? Do you think that's because you're thinking of it as as something that's more traditional rather than a found object that you're trying to enhance? I think of it solely in how much I love when I see the evidence of time-based techniques in the branch density. And I have not found as effective a method of building successful branch structures without doing it incrementally. 
if you have something really unusual, and I guess this is the thing that I talked about earlier, but if yeah. you have a starting point that's very unusual, and then you put those time honored techniques onto that, yeah, do you like do you like that? I mean, well, so the question gets to very specifically in this case: Do I want dense branches or not on the tree? And if I want short inner nodes, I'm going to build it. If I want long inner nodes or I want the thing to be really spaced out and airy, then we can have at it and style it right up front. It's, you know, it's interesting, too, because, you know, someone like Walter Paul does very different work than I do. Uh-huh. But he also gets trees that are dense. At least his well, where is plants. the density? And so when you look at the structure, and this is a little more technical, inch by inch from the base of the trunk to the end of the tree, a lot of that density is coming fairly far out. And so what's the most compelling part of the tree? Like the core inner third of that tree, the kind of middle zone, or is it that outer zone that's been pruned again and again and again, and we get a lot of twiggy straight twigs out towards the end. Different trees are all going to be different. That's species by species, tree by tree. But if you want control over that process, it's you, you kind of get the choice. You know, how do you want to build that thing out? And that's just my bias of how I learned it. It's what I saw in the magazines when I was reading through Japanese magazines. And by reading, I mean looking at the pictures, let's be serious. And I'm good at delayed gratification. I don't really need a tree to look exciting at that first styling. I love just watching the progress year after year. And my goals are often more technically focused at oh yeah i want to see can we keep this thing healthy can we get the inner nodes we're aiming for because if i can't get the inner nodes i want then i can't exercise the design that i'm going for you know it's an interesting thought to think about you know we always think that if you're going to be field growing bonsai or just just being a regular bonsai grower that you're going to end up with something traditional and i think maybe and yet that's not at all what we have seen from our growers around the country yeah in fact most of the american growers i would say have very un unconventional yes. non traditional material. That's right. But we always assume, you know, you start growing bonsai, it's going to be this very traditional thing, and you don't think about, you know, I mean, I I've never heard of a grower say, I'm going to plant these trees and they're going to be wild, and I'm still going to work on them. You know, I'm going to prune them back and whatnot. But I'm going for I'm I'm growing I'm growing yamadori. I'm not growing bonsai in a field and i think you just said what you hear if you read between the lines i'm terribly mixing metaphors when someone tells me that they have a thousand trees in the field what they're telling me is they're growing yamadori they're not growing bonsai to look like bonsai because no one's going to have the time to do the work along the way to yield a tree that we recognize as oh look there's taper there's movement that i understand you know, the interesting thing, though, is that when someone's growing, let's say, Yamadori versus someone's growing conventional bonsai, you still end up probably with a similar success rate of, you know, a small handful are really good trees yes. and then a lot are fairly average. Or, right. Or, and so then you have to find out what do you want to end up with and what percentage do you want to be good. And so the reason I'm so clear at how I think of this is, <laughs> I won't say effective, I'll say clear in how I think of it. Because I have tried to consciously grow trees from seed for, you know, 25 plus years right now. And I know that it's insanely hard, even when you're trying to go for a traditional model. And so my bias is always toward, if I don't see what I want to see, it's not due to lack of vision as much as 
it's hard and it requires effort. And so it gives me so much stronger appreciation for trees that are well built and that don't have the most obvious flaws that can be so distracting. And so I know it's not as cool to appreciate things that are well done because they're such unicorns. They are so hard to execute. Yeah, and a lot of these well-done trees are trees that, I don't know, we we think about them, we, we put them up high on a pedestal, and so they have this look that's familiar. Well, do they? And so here's where I get into more interesting arguments for me personally, because how many well-executed trees start to finish do we have in this country? And I'd argue it's very small, peanuts. In Japan, there's a whole bunch of beautiful trees, but most people experience Japanese trees through images, videos, photographs, and it's not as direct an experience with these, quote, conventional or boring trees, which are insanely hard to execute. That's that's the irony, is that these yes. cookie, what, what people use as cookie-cutter trees are some of the more difficult trees to create. They're some of the hardest trees to create, and they're insanely unique. And when you look at the best trees in Japan, they're not cookie-cutters. Do they have full silhouettes? Yes, because that evidence that provides evidence of the time-based techniques on giving the branches on them. But if it's a pine, you want bark. If it's a maple, you want that density of the branches and a low-scarred trunk with some interest in it. And that is insanely hard to do over decades. To not let it blow out once, year after year after year on a trident maple forest with a bunch of skinny trunks, that's insanely hard. And even one of the best gardens in all of Japan for producing those at Takayama's Garden... At Fuyuan, man, they're not perfect. They're not perfect. And these are some of the best guys in the world doing this decade after decade, and you still find it hard to see that. So it's interesting where the art and the technique overlap, and I think that's kind of square, like the heart of kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I know that where my failures have sometimes resulted in really fun and unusual trees. It was never what I started for. I may love the trees now, but I can't say they're good with a straight face because they're just kooky. And I am very happy with what I did with them based on the starting point. But I would never say with a straight face, oh yeah, try to do that again. And yeah. so I'm always trying different things and trying new ways to come up with you know trees that I find compelling. Do you have a lot of field grown trees in your your garden? Like like let's just talk actual field grown because yeah, this farm to table right. is is celebrating the legacy of Telperion, which is a, a mm-hmm. you know, our more our, one of our more famous ground growers. Exactly. So talking just specifically field grown trees, do you have a lot of these in your your garden? You know what, what's what, funny. What Over the years, field grown trees have come in and out of my garden, but at no point have I carried a ton of field grown trees for a long period of time. And I'm going to guess the main reason for that is twofold. One, they're very highly desirable trees. And so people are always going to be interested in things with bigger trunks. And so I'd be more like if I have a bunch of them at any one given time, I'd be more likely to sell them because I have a bunch of them. The other thing is... And those are the ones that people are asking you about. Precisely. People want size more than they want quality. That's always been the case. Do you have anything with a trunk X inches big? And that's the question. Do you think we're at fault because we always tell people to buy the trunk? So I don't know that I've always told people to buy the trunks. I, I, I yeah. tell people to buy the trunk because you end I up mean, in a place. You end up with a tree much faster that way. You end up with a tree faster. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
And that's yeah. why I think I've learned so many lessons about the trunks because having tried to grow the trunk as opposed to letting nature do it and rolling the dice as to the good one, yeah, you'll have a much better collection if you buy the best field-grown trees, no question. But I have had a number of field-grown trees in the garden that I've worked on for longer periods of time, and you're, I found you're, you're, it insanely slow. Your nice Chuhian black pine, is that a lone pine tree? Where, where'd that one come yes, from? Yes, that was a field-grown tree at Lone Pine. It was one of the seedling cuttings that Kathy Shaner started, I believe, in 1993. I dug the tree when it was probably 10, 15 years old and have been postponing working on it year after year for most of the last 10 years and yeah that's one of my better pines but that is a field grown tree that's the one i've probably put the most uh, care into it and i literally might have wired it once or twice in 15 years once or twice in 15 years maybe. on a black pine maybe so how are you creating because i mean you showed that at the national not oh no 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 i never showed that one at the national yeah, this one has yet to get to show shape. I have a couple medium-sized trees. The one from the one, the field-grown one that I've been working on so long, that one hasn't been shown yet. Gotcha. And gotcha. it's it's a little ways out. What? Because I haven't worked on it. That's yeah. Not what other field-grown trees? Do you have many field-grown deciduous? Yeah. So I've had probably more field-grown deciduous. I'd worked on it a couple trident maples from Lone Pine Gardens for a lot of years. I've worked on chojubai from both Telperion and from Lone Pine. Um, but they were younger trees. You know, they never got really thick. Or as well as the Bonsai Northwest tree. I've yeah. worked, oh, and the field-grown Bonsai Northwest junipers. I've had a those dozen are, of those. Those are fantastic trees. Super fun trees. And so I've learned more about how to grow junipers from having a concrete starting point than I ever would have got from looking at any number of books, magazines, or articles. Like just having a tree grown not the way you want to end up with is an awesome opportunity for learning what you want to do differently yeah yeah it really is um so we were just talking about growers i mean who can you name off the top of your head i mean we just named Mm. several of the big ones who can you name off the top of your head that have actually grown trees in the ground at some type of scale so we talked about john muth pontine northwest yes we talked about telperion and we talked about lone pine brussels Brussels, you know, he's done a lot of, um, I think, tridents yeah. uh, and uh, donned redwoods. He's done quite quite extensively. Um, so if you're going for numbers, start talking about Georgia, Florida, where uh, there are thousands of percumbens junipers that are all 34, well, we're like 40 years old right now, that I don't know the name of the farm where they were grown, but I know many ended up at Plant City. Ah, yeah, I know these trees. Uh, what about the giant trident stewartia grower who's also down in the south? I haven't been there, Was but I know. Warren Hill? No, not Warren Hill. This is more recent, but I, I don't know the name because I haven't been to the place, but I've seen some trees that came from there. Really neat field-grown trees. Interesting. Yeah. So there are a handful of people out there. But, but we, the list drops off real, real fast, at least from what we're aware of. And the thing that always yeah. puzzles me is, I mean, we have so many, a lot of our growers are on the West Coast, but you could easily be growing black pines in the ground and in georgia in north carolina way better weather than i have for it yep yeah and i just i wonder why there's not bonsai farms all over the country yeah maybe middle of arizona is not a great figured out how hard it is to run a business growing pines oh it's terrible (laughs) it doesn't make sense you got to do it because you love it and so the example that i use is let's say we want to sell a 10 year old product and let's say we want to sell 100 a year well that means over 10 years you've got a thousand trees and so if you're growing 100, what are the, what's the average value of every one of those 100 trees, assuming they even live to term it 10 years? So how many people have what it takes to maintain 1,000 trees to sell just 100 a year? 
it's it's and, a, and what's the quality if you've got a thousand trees in your garden and you what are the odds you're going to prune them at the right time and work on them when they're literally in the ground like that's hard belly work isn't the most fun ask yeah. john muth yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's a very different skill set <laughs> Um, well, so that's where Joe Harris are, comes to the rescue because we know how the commercial nursery industry grows incredibly consistent quality, healthy trees. And, and they actually make profit they because they have yes. to. And the reason they make profit is because they have dialed in precisely how to maintain health. That's 90% of it. And then the rest are some the straightforward techniques that can deliver the product they want on time. Yeah, we, we need to get Joe Harris on the product podcast i mean he yeah the the things that i've learned about isley nursery which is isley is like they they want to be like the the porsche of of garden center plants they're you know they're they're striving for like if a, every other conifer in america was a porsche like they're yeah they're yeah, big yeah. and they're good and they care a ton about their their, their quality bar so oh, they'll man. burn thousands of trees a year that don't meet that quality because if you have a tree that's below that bar then that's associated with the Isley name. And yeah, Joe doesn't brand. allow cuts. Is it larger than his thumb or larger, larger than, his, than finger? his thumb? I, I believe. Yeah, it's one yeah. of those one of some finger. Uh, like, they just do not allow tens of thousands yeah. of Japanese maples. Yeah, they do not allow cuts larger than that because the odds that the tree will become infected or that you're going to have some dieback on there are so high that they know they're better off throwing away a tree than having a scar, which is going to allow them, prevent them from getting the margin they want on the final product. Yeah, it's insane. Love it. You know, we, speaking of people we need on the podcast too, uh, John Muth, we need to, to yes. really talk to him. Yeah. He has told me fascinating stories from having a bonsai <laughs> retail business for years. Yeah. If he wires an S-curve, something that you and I try and avoid like the plague, That's it sells. sells. Yep unbelievably if he wires what you and i consider good movement he has far fewer buyers far fewer buyers because s curve reads bonsai to people that just walk in off the street yeah that's right it's it's their it's the what they see when they go on amazon and look for a yeah. tree for sale it's and so it's, it'll be obvious to pretty much every person listening that andrew and i have a very strong bias toward we want to make really high quality what we find beautiful bonsai and that's going to be more unique forms it's typically going to be a lot more challenging to grow and it's going to bear much greater scrutiny if executed well yeah and you and i should we should also disclose <laughs> you, you and i don't do a lot of growing in the ground either no. but we work on a lot of these trees with that's students right. and, and trees i've that done we a acquire. very small amount of ground growing i stuck a number of things in the ground that i had for a long time actually i had tried it maples in the ground longer than anything like like literally over 20 years ago so working on a lot of trees that have been ground grown what what do you see that you wish they had done roots. that they didn't? Period. That's that's Let's, exactly what I was thinking. Number one, roots. Because we because <laughs> I mean when we're putting it in the ground, we're we're at the basic assumption, oh, I want to get a big trunk. Right. So I just leave it there and by leaving it there and not pulling it out and working on the roots, you get a big trunk really fast. But then you and I go to dig that, that tree out. Yep. We bring it home and it's a disaster. And and so if if they took twice as long to grow the tree, which is still really fast, but they pulled it out every it doesn't even have to be every two years, every three or four years, worked on the roots, put it back in. That's right. It it would make all the difference. Yeah. So number one is roots. Number two is trunk basics. And by trunk basics, I mean the number, size, and location of scars, which is another way of saying the taper in the movement. 
And that's pretty much it. That Those are the two things that I would most want to see. I'm not even going to be as picky to say, as, can you leave me some small branches so I don't have to graft? Yeah, we like, can. I we know can, how we, to do that, yeah, we but can, I don't even expect someone to do we that. We can put branches where we need them. Yeah, but. if they don't make big cuts. because what a lot, yeah, So and this is yeah. where it's getting picky, especially when you work on conifers. It's What's so fun about growing a deciduous tree in the ground is you make that big saw cut and you're going to get buds. If you make a big saw cut on a conifer, what you're doing is you're just saying, I'm not going to allow you to graft here, here, and here because we now no longer have sap flow along that entire side of the tree. It's it's a much more complicated problem with a, a conifer than it is yeah. deciduous. Hitting the reset button on a deciduous is easy. Yeah. Hitting the reset button on a conifer, very that's hard. Right. And that's why I've been so... I've had you know mixed feelings of ambivalent about the results of our ground growing because when you have those thousand conifers, the odds that I'm going to be able to put branches where I want are low, and that's why we see so many fantastical forms on these Yamadori conifers. And we're going to see some at farm to table, yeah. and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. And it, it, it's limiting the palette of options we have for how we style. I'm so excited to see the work that Matt Reel's been doing on <laughs> I can't these, these pines because it, they are challenges. I mean, when... And you puzzles. don't have all the branches in the same spot. And you're, let's say, I'm not just going to graft the branch where I need it. I'm going to work with what the tree has. Yep. It's a very different ball game. It's it's, And that's what I find with uh, my favorite Telperian tree I have in my garden right now is literally one graft and I could have a very conventional pine form and it would be a very easy tree to make. There is a large saw cut. And there's borderline no lifeline or sap flow anywhere near the area where the graft would need to be, which means there's going to be a comb over. You know, something I was just thinking about is, you know, I really, this, and this is maybe just my practice or or my approach, but I really like working with limitations. And maybe the reason that I like some of these, you know, American field grown plants is that they weren't grown perfectly or, or they, you know, they have a lot of momentum to them and, and it really limits my options for what I can do. Sure, maybe you put a graph wherever you want it or you cut it back and you grow it as something traditional. Yeah. But when you work with the limitations, I find creatively, I, I much rather do that than have a, a starting point that's infinite in, in ways to go because I like the challenge of how do I make this work? I like a project where I have some sense that I'm going to be happy with where we're going with it. And what's funny is, I've learned that people, and I mean me by this, are a bad judge of the potential when you're a number of years out. Um, and that's where Maria's work comes in, which is so amazing. You look at some of the starting points of the trunks and think, oh, seriously? And then yeah. you fast forward a few years and you're like, that's a really interesting tree. It's, you know, it's interesting to me. Her work is 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 fascinating on so many levels. One is that even though these are Yamadori, it's still a long-term deciduous process for her you know she's she's taking these trees and getting them into the trophy in about 10 years something like that Mm -hmm. maybe 12 i'm I'm sure she's learning as she's going and and reducing that number but you know it's still it's not like a conifer yamadori where you know you get an awesome tree from the mountains you do a styling or two or three and it's in the show in five years yeah, uh, and these these are still showing that longer term deciduous approach. But yeah, her work is is magical. I mean, she's basically a lot of her trees are are so they remind me so much of these these horror memes that I got from Telperion mm. because I'm I'm hitting that reset button very similar to how she did when they came out of the field, and it's it's giving me that challenge. And you get a lot of sprouts that you build the tree off of, so you have this unconventional trunk with a lot of character and, and power. 
um, and and then you you hit the reset button, you get a lot of young sprouts, and so you have a big trunk, young sprouts, and you build your tree for about ten years off of that. And so this is what we're going to be talking about at the super critiques, which are. Oh, look, something is straight. How long a straight section will be acceptable based on how many years I want to put into this and how big the tree is going to get. And we're going to be talking very specifically because this section is straight, we're going to only let it be this long. And based on how thick that straight section is, that tells us how long the next section of trunk will be. And that's the other thing about field growing that I know I've got a strong bias in that area too, which is finish growing the trunk, then focus on the branches. Just because it came out of the ground doesn't mean the trunk is done. If the biggest scar on the tree is three inches, well, then there's probably a few things to heal and or carve and then multiple secondary or tertiary sections of the trunk that need to be grown. That's what Mario has done such a great job of is taking those big cuts, growing the next sections out, and then doing your refinement work on top of that. Get from four inches down to three to two to one. Don't yeah, just jump from four, wire it down to one, and you're done. Yeah, she's building that transitionary material right. from these really nice big trunks. And that's what we see a lot of in, with our field-grown bonsai that I see in shows, and I'm sure you do too, is a, a nice big trunk with little tiny twigs coming off it. Because that middle not... part's hard. It's slow, it's boring, it's sacrificed branches, it takes up a ton of space in the garden. Yep. And that's probably my very favorite part. Is and this is, part. I mean, I don't think Peter T is working on these, these same types of trees that we're talking about, but with very conventional trees, Peter is absolutely fantastic at building that transitional material. He's one of the few people that I see spending a lot of time and energy focusing on, you know... Oh, this branch isn't as thick as it needs to be for the trunk size that you have. We need to really, you know, don't cut this. Stop, stop yes. cutting it. Put your scissors down, utensils down, hands up, walk away, yeah. and just let this thing grow so we can actually get that transitionary material. So it's not just yeah, big trunk right. to little twig. It's big trunk to big branch to secondary branch to tertiary right. branch to fine twig. And It's our basic course to fine processes and that's why I think deciduous trees are such a great model because you learn deciduous trees force you to learn all this because you're showing them without their leaves and there's you can't do heavy bends <laughs> per se yeah. and yeah. you're showing them without their leaves and so the two easiest ways to cheat with a conifer you just can't do that with deciduous. Yeah, they're, they're more honest. Oh, and plants. if you care about internode length forget about it then you really have to you know, yeah. pay attention to what you're doing. But if you're like me or you, when we go to a bonsai show and we're, you know, squatting down, we're looking up inside the trees, we notice this right away. But yep. when you're just standing there walking by the room, not really moving your head, interacting with the trees, looking deeper, then then you can miss a lot of these things. Yeah, I'm getting terrible. Now, walking around the show today, I noticed my initial impressions when I'd see a big deciduous trees, even from 10, 15 feet away, I was already thinking, you know, I wonder how aggressive they can be in their defoliation every year. I wonder, uh, you know, how many more years it's going to take or if it's worth thickening that last thing up. Like, I'm instantly thinking about, oh, their climate's a little bit different than mine. I wonder what kind of adjustments I'd have to make to get that kind of effect. Like, I'm literally trying to troubleshoot and solve how would I achieve these things that I like? How would I avoid these things that I don't like? Well, and it's, it really sheds light on the fact that bonsai is one, steps, one step backward, two steps forwards. It's, on a good day. On a good, good day, right? Yeah. It's 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 we got to take this a step back. You know, you got to take the show tree and put a sacrifice branch on it to take it to another level. To that's right. You know, you put it in the show, appreciate it for what it is. Let's celebrate. You know, the progress that's been done. But then after the show, take it home and and okay, how do we improve it? Do we need to spend five years thinking up a low branch? Do we need yeah. to, you know, 
change a new front and and make you know change our branch and make that work we, you know it it's i don't know it's you use the word celebrate and that's what we're going to be doing at farm to table and that's why it's going to be fun and i think everyone who gets to go is going to really be happy that they're there because it's going to be a bunch of us that like that development process sharing as best as we can what ideas we have for how we can make more trees get onto a path that's going to end up with a compelling result and that's what i'm excited for yeah yeah i think it's i think it's going to be a fun event so again it's may 14th and 15th it's in portland oregon uh, we have a really fun lineup myself jonas matt Rio, michael hegedorn um, tom finsel chris and lisa kirk gary wood uh, it's it's a really really fun crowd, and then everybody in the audience contributing their thoughts as well. Yep. So it's it's going to be fun. Lots of fun days of of groupthink and 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 you know, us, us working together and a little show and some some great vendors and it's 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 all about the bonsai man. It's going to be it's going to be a wait. lot of fun. It sounds awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you. There you have it. That's what our plan is for the uh, upcoming event and uh, we've uh, actually the what's the website how do you get to the website all the information is wonderfully presented on at Portland bonsai.org Portland bonsai.org if you can make it in person I highly recommend <laughs> if you're if, if that's within your means to, to come and, and support us uh, if you can't make it in person uh, but you have a field grown tree you're you have some some American grown material uh, check out our, our live stream pass because that's going to give you the information um, electronically. So awesome. it's a fun event. I hope awesome. to see you there. Thanks for putting it together. Cheers. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue.